Hi, Lily. Thanks for joining me. Hey, great to be here. To start, I'd love for you to describe your untypical childhood and the parenting philosophy you were raised under. Yeah, so I was raised under something called taking children seriously, which was a philosophy developed by uh, David Deutsch and uh, Sarah Fitzclaridge and other people. And um, effectively, it was that I I didn't go to school. Uh, and, and that was an, an option for me, like I could have uh, gone to school. And in fact, when I was 16, I tried it out for a few months to see what it was like. It was basically what I expected. So I left. Um, and and everything I did was uh, myself driven. So I just like followed my own interests. Can you describe how it was like, was there any structure uh, whatsoever or were you just allowed to choose anything that came up uh, in your mind as interesting? Yeah, I mean, even the framing allowed to choose is sort of like you, you, when when you think of your friend, you wouldn't say, oh, yes, I, I allowed him to choose like whatever he was in. It, no, it, like I'm I'm a person. I, I follow my interests. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it was me following my own interests, either like I would ask questions or I would uh, Google it or I would uh, like want books or something. And then I would follow through my interests, like by reading books or documentaries or anything. So it was, it was incredibly, I mean, it, it's exactly what I do now. It's like I have interests and I follow them. Nice. How is it trying to socialize then and make friends in your situation where you weren't going to school, as you said, and presumably not everyone you would meet at the local park say would have their would have parents who were taking them seriously in the philosophical sense so did you face any problems with socializing not problem if if anything when when i was 16 and i decided to to go to school uh i was surprised at how like weird the socializing was there because you you just didn't have time to go in in depth like i was used to so so first of all, uh, I we were part of different home education groups, and so uh, we lived in London at this time, and so there were a lot of kids who also had kind of similar uh, stuff to me. Um, in addition to that, uh, like just hanging out with with school kids locally in the area, and I don't know, like I, I never really found that much of a problem socializing, even though I was an introvert, and so you know I would I would be at home a lot playing video games and so on, um, but but I was used to having long in-depth discussions and then when I was 16 and I tried out sixth form college which is like the British equivalent of high school I found that it, it was all it was almost like people pretended to know each other better than they did it's like but I haven't had a four-hour long conversation with you about philosophy yet like how <laughs> like this is uh, interesting so so it felt like it took longer to build up those friendships um, in the school setting I think it's also weird that when you're in school you're kind of forced to be around people that you might not like right but when you're again following your own interests you can follow uh friendships that are interesting to you and people that you'd like to meet but in school it's like no this is the class and these are the people you're going to see every day even if you don't want to see them and sometimes like some schools are more liberal but um in some of the schools i've been into we actually couldn't even decide whom we were going to sit, sit next to. So that was decided by the class teacher. So that can actually sometimes have an adverse effect on socializing. And that can, you know, sometimes cause people to not really like people that much. Because again, you're not uh, 
allowed to <laughs> allowed to choose people that you yeah, really like want to freedom of association with. yeah exactly so yeah I, I was actually really surprised because so I was home educated but in 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 England uh, I would say most home educators are sort of more hippie type people and then in America most home educators as far as I can tell are more uh, religious type people and and my family was sort of neither libertarian mm. and but I was really surprised when I found out that um so even in religious homeschool bullying isn't really a thing and and in in all of the, the the homeschooling that I've I've seen like bullying just like does not happen it turns out if you have freedom of association bullying is just not a thing uh and 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 also I noticed with with kids who like kids I hung out with um, locally who are school kids, whenever they were with other school kids, they would just get like very mean and just like like become just very mean. And but whenever they were hanging out with with me and my sister, uh, they were like fine, and it was it was nice to hang out with them. Like individually, it was nice to hang out with them. But then when they got into these like school related like groups, then then they suddenly became mean. And I was I always found that kind of interesting and, and confusing. But I guess now in hindsight, it's obvious why. It's almost inconceivable to some people to grant this kind of freedom to children. And before reading Deutsch, I think I I may have implicitly known that there was something wrong in the way children were treated at a societal level, but only after deeply understanding epistemology and learning about taking children seriously did I actually recognize the serious mistakes of authoritarianism and parenting and really authoritarianism everywhere else. Why do you think society is so against granting this kind of freedom to children? I think part of it is that um, people think that children are a different category of person compared with adults like they think ah children's brains are not fully developed and therefore that means that we should control them so that's that's one kind of big thing um and and i wonder whether it's something like that parenting memes uh must have evolved to be the most uh the the place where so if, if we go back to the beginning of infinity it, it talks about these two different types of meme there's rational memes like uh science and these memes transmit by being useful and uh and by standing up to criticism but anti-rational memes transmit by disabling their holders cr critical faculties and the only way really to do that is to entrench hang-ups and irrationalities and so on from when you're quite young and mm -hmm. so uh memes to do with parenting and education have the highest selection pressure to be anti-rational and so like that's a very high level like maybe that's true mm -hmm. um and 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 then also i guess like parenting is very difficult like any kind of close relationships are very difficult, but parenting is sort of especially difficult. And so I think people are on edge a lot and they're just like trying to find some kind of way to deal with the situation. And so I think all of these things sort of uh, mix together to to produce the, the society that we see. But also it's like, I don't know, TCS is uh, what, like 30 years old at this point. Um, and so it's not it's not that uh, well known. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, but I really think it comes down to your thinking about what is a person and like, what is possible to learn when you're young and, and how does learning work and, and does it, does it work by the bucket theory of the mind as, as Popper criticized, 
um and and this, the whole school system is built on that or uh does it does it work by following your own interests so but. how did you get interested in epistemology um i think originally it was that when i was a teenager um just sort of naturally i i'd be talking to other kids and and talking about ideas and then um Let's see. I remember arguing with people on message boards about morality when I was like fourteen uh, or something, maybe thirteen. And then the thing that really got me into it was that when I went to uh, school, um, I I I went and I did a philosophy class, and I discovered that there are foundationalists in the world. And and then I started like because I'd grown up with Popper, like I'd grown up under Popper applied to education. And so then I got like more like deeply interested in, okay, what does this actually mean? How is this different from other like people? So I think a lot of the ideas like, you know, kind of rebellion against authority or just uh, not thinking of authority as this infallible being was implicit in your upbringing and childhood. Right. Yeah. Uh, if anything, the opposite. <laughs> Like a fairly anti-authoritarian sort of right. situation. Uh, you're one of these unique people in the critical rationalist community who ties these ideas to psychology and the social sciences. But of course, you don't think of those subjects in the conventional academic way. Why do you say social science isn't science? And what can the current academic disciplines of psychology, sociology, and the social sciences in general learn from epistemology? Yeah, the the reason that I think it's not a science is that um, human minds are basically governed by this uh, epistemological thing that, that Popper described, which includes that we have creativity and we have the ability to have any thought that is possible to have, uh, that, that we are universal. And once you have something that is not predictable, that is inherently not predictable because it involves creating new knowledge, you can't, you can't make predictions and so you can't do physical science on it. Um, I, I think that there are probably some branches of psychology that, uh, that are science, like maybe there's some sort of low-level neurological stuff uh, and that, that seems fine to me. But whenever you get a field that now depends on what ideas do people have and you 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 know you can do a test on them and that might change their ideas and then at the end of the test they're different and and all of this sort of thing can can influence uh what what you're actually studying and so really it's more like the study of ideas and culture and what what are the memes and how do people usually respond to these things and um, uh, yeah, like, like I kind of think of psychology, like the useful parts of psychology are more in things like, um, uh, like how does trauma work or how does, uh, how does, how do hangups get entrenched in the first place? And I think psychology has discovered a bunch of cool stuff around that. Interesting. Mainstream psychology seems to portray a tragic view of humans as these inherently irrational creatures with all these biases. And that's compelling to a lot of people. I mean, it, it was compelling to me. And um, I think Richard Dawkins coined the term middle world, this idea that humans experience the realm between the world of atoms uh, and quarks and 
the world of stars and galaxies and that the universe is queerer than we can suppose. Um, I'd love for you to debunk some of these popular branches of psychology, like evolutionary psychology and um, about neurology. You, you've said before that psychology would do well to study its foundations, which is not neurology, but indeed epistemology. So maybe those two we can start with. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I can debunk it in a in a very short way, but I can I can maybe give some pointers, sure. which is that the main thing is that all of our biological um, uh, inclinations and everything are still um, subject to interpretation. So because we have this universal ability to to you know think about any idea, um, any biological drive can be reinterpreted and and given that we have memes not just genes uh there has also been evolutionary pressure for all of the uh or as much content as possible to uh go from from genes to memes like basically if if a if some memes can do a behavior then uh because memes can evolve so much faster then there's more evolutionary pressure for uh that behavior to be taken over by memes so that's a sort of a general reason that I think that that there is a tendency towards memes um, taking kind of the evolutionary uh, brunt of the work. Um, now, I think memes are also harder to get rid of, like like they get more entrenched, they, they, they uh, can adapt faster. Uh, whereas genes, like okay, yeah, you have a, a fear of heights, and then um, and then you can reinterpret that as excitement. Like like genes mm -hmm. genes tend to be quite dumb. Um, like simple. Uh, I would also say, by the way, um, so David Deutsch did a podcast with uh, Do Explain. I think it was episode 10. Yeah, episode 10 on Do Explain, where, where he goes into more of the evolutionary psychology stuff, which I quite liked. Nice. And what about neurology? You said that um, psychology would do well to study its foundations which is not neurology but epistemology why would you say that because if you're interpreting people um and and people behavior just as these dumb uh me mechanistic things then that is ignoring the the vast majority of what a person is which is someone who can create new knowledge and uh someone who has culture and uh and where there's these anti-rational and rational memes that are that are vying for control maybe um so and and if you think about it like like what is the kind of the most basic sort of piece and i would say that it's uh like like i think epistemology is most fundamental because it's about how does information like move from one system to another or how does it get created or how like how does that like ev everything is basically governed by knowledge and the, the power of knowledge to to make changes and so um because psychology is about people then that's where i would like go go into you gave a talk titled applied philosophy about 12 years ago and people can watch it on youtube where you discuss some of these ideas we've been talking about and in that talk, you say, quote, any one of us could revolutionize psychology by writing a book or paper on memes. Has anyone you know gone ahead and tried to write about this? Has there been any progress yet? Uh, not 
really. Um, I've seen, yeah, I would say not really, but also the more that I've learned about actual psychology, <laughs> the, more, the more I think I was just missing a lot 12 years ago when I was, you know, 20 or whatever, however old that was. Um, uh, I think that the meme theory would have to be developed a lot to be practical and applicable and and even to account um like like there's a way that meme theory can account for like the big things like ah why does science work and why does uh religion kind of not work but kind of work but the, and the, even there, there there are kind of questions about it and then like oh well we can guess that parenting is subject to anti-rational memes and so uh and, and so you can kind of see them like in that small scale but what meme theory i feel like hasn't fully accounted for is the the more like medium scale like what are systems of let's say personality traits that cause uh either those personality traits or the opposite to get transmitted to the next generation so like like for example if you are um uh, if you are narcissistic in in the psychological sense, and and if you um, require your children to be perfectionist and to always impress you, and then that transmits like particular hangups in them, like that's a whole kind of field, and that's what a lot of psychology does indeed study. They just don't call it meme theory. Hmm. Um, so I used to think, or perhaps I still think that. Uh, when humans artificially evolve into these higher beings, maybe cyborgs, then like the whole field of psychology, at least now the conventional way, which is also pretty diverse now. So like a lot of psychology will become redundant because then humans won't be driven by these urges that they evolved for in the sava African savannas. But maybe the kind of psychology you're describing doesn't have to go anywhere even after we become cyborgs or it applies to any or all alien civilizations with technology even far superior to ours right now yeah i mean one one question i have is which of the biological inborn ideas do you actually need for consciousness like this this is maybe where um deutsch and i like slightly depart or i don't know i'm, I'm sort of still thinking about it but um I'm inclined to think that some of the physical things uh, may indeed even be needed for consciousness. Um, and I think uh, David Deutsch thinks like not really or, or that you just need the some kind of input and then you can artificially make the input or, or something. So so when you say when we become cyborgs, I kind of think, um, well, there's going to need to be some kind of equivalent in in the cyborg body. Like they may have different inborn ideas, but there's going to be like like the, we don't know what consciousness is. We don't know like how creativity works, but but possibly there will be some kind of like physical related thing. And I, I was just on this uh, the the Do Explain podcast with with Jake Orthwain and and uh, and then talking about uh, meta rationalism or meta rationality, David Chapman stuff, and um, and they think that epistemology works by uh, interaction with the environment and so if if that were true then actually like having a physical body would be intimately related to to this consciousness thing and so i don't really know what the answer is yet i'm still sort of like learning about all of these different <laughs> worldviews. sure we're seeing so many people talk about 
artificial intelligence and GPD-4 apparently being the seeds for AGI. So I can't miss asking you, what could perhaps AI safety experts learn from this different kind of psychology that we're talking about? AI safety. Ah, um, psychology. Like my my first thought about AI safety is more that it's about epistemology than than about psychology, um, because I am skeptical that it is possible to have a super intelligence. Because I think of intelligence as this binary thing. So people have it, uh, and other people and other entities don't have it. And I think that when we make AGI, it will just be another type of person. Um, this is assuming that critical rationalism is true, which, you know, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, as for psychology, I don't know, uh, mostly just uh, non-coercion, non I would guess, because if if you're creating this person and then you're enslaving it, uh, that mm -hmm. is not very pleasant and uh, uh, also not very good for their learning and, and various stuff like that. Right. Um, so switching gears a bit, you have a great post called criticism scheduling and privacy where you explain why being in control of when how and what you get criticism on is a vital part of the growth of knowledge and that criticism purely isn't a good thing so at first it kind of sounded to me like a heretical thought to critical rationalism because okay. uh, you know as if you were suggesting that we should limit the means of error correction but you actually write quote unwanted criticism can effectively destroy the means of error correction and the growth of knowledge. So please explain. Yeah. Um, the, the very, the most fundamental thing about all of my worldview and everything, I think, no matter whether I'm like feeling like a critical rationalist one day or a meta rationalist or an Alexander technique person or anything is this idea of non-coercion and so the way that this relates to criticism is that the growth of knowledge can only work if you are following your own interests and problems. And if you are either handing that over to an authority to decide what your problems are, or to, to an authority to decide what the answers are, or, uh, or an authority to decide which, criticism, which criticisms are valid for whatever your problems are, all of these things are a type of authoritarianism. Like they, they all say, never mind about the quality of the ideas. Let's uh, let's just like hand it over to an authority. And so, when it comes to taking in criticism, uh, there there are an unlimited number of criticisms that you could uh, be considering at any one time. So, how do you even narrow that down to something that's useful? And and so if someone is giving criticism indiscriminately, then that can affect the way that you think about things and it can take you down paths that are not as good as if you could uh, control the type of information that you're getting so that you can get something that's really tuned to what you're interested in. So if you're, so are you suggesting like I'm the authority of the criticism that I want to take in or like I'm in control of it. So wouldn't that also lead to some kind of authoritarianism, just turning it to myself? Yeah, it's, um, 
I think there's a way that you could do that. Like if you decided in advance, like, ah, I will only accept criticisms that um, mention the color blue or I don't know, like whatever arbitrary thing, uh, which is when you're kind of deciding at the outset and then effectively that's a bit like there's a sub agent in you that is is uh, forcing a particular thing. Um, it, it's more like the logic of your problem will determine which thing makes sense or which thing feels exciting to pursue or fun. Uh, and and so so a, like a human mind is like very complex and has a lot of different parts and um, uh, has internal contradictions and so on. and there's there's a there's a really cool thing that happens when when something is promising, where where it's sort of uh, th this is related to the fun criterion video that I that I did with David, which is about that the fun is when your explicit ideas about something and your inexplicit or subconscious ideas about something align, and then you can just like really kind of go for it. It's a bit like getting into flow. It's like they uh, you don't have any current criticism of that being the right path. And so that's the sort of situation where where criticism would be good. It's like, oh yeah, like this 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 seems cool. This seem so I think I'm kind of getting it, but if you can be, you know, you, your feelings can somehow uh, uh, keep you against some kind of ideas, some kind of criticisms that you don't want to take into account, which might be like an idea that you hold very dearly, but you don't want to maybe it's mostly wrong that's why I like a criticism uh which is a valid one perhaps but you're not really taking that into account because you know you're driven by this emotional you and uh, uh you just don't want to take that account so yeah kind of how do you tie that with like yourself and wanting to actually have your ideas criticized because obviously you and i both know that uh that's how we make progress and uh that's how we learn part of yeah. how we learn before you resolve the emotional problem you can't really tell whether it's a um whether it's like a purely irrational hang up or something or whether it has some information in it and so to just say ah this is emotional therefore i won't listen to it like that's also a type of authoritarianism yeah. that's sort of siding with the explicit ideas and um, I would say sort of like quite often to always, uh, there is something that the underlying emotional uh, or hang up shaped or irrationality shaped thing is, is sort of trying to get at, but there is a mis misconception at a different level. And so then the answer is not to just sort of proceed and pretend that that criticism, like, oh, that, that doesn't count, but it's more like, ah, so there's this subject which I want to make progress on, like whatever I'm I'm doing some physics problem or something, and then there's the thing the the other subject which is causing the first one to get messed up, and so the other subject might be like ah I don't feel motivated to work on this problem because I feel like I'm not good enough and I feel like if I if I try then I'm just going to fail and that will be humiliating and whatever like all of that stuff is sort of. Uh, potentially real things in the world, like like maybe you actually do uh, not know how to deal with uh, like rejection of your peers or something, and so all of that is still a a valid area to go into, and and either one of these can be addressed sort of independently, 
Um, but to just say, oh, this doesn't count because it has that that sort of quality. Like it could mm -hmm. be that that actually that that thing that you thought, oh, that's just like my own hang-ups about my own like self-esteem. Maybe it's saying, oh no, actually, I don't really want to do physics. Like maybe this physics thing was just something that I did um because that's what my parents wanted me to be. And maybe actually I want to be a, a ballet dancer or you know, whatever it is. How important is it to be trying to make these inexplicit ideas explicit and I'm assuming it's like the same way like you learn about anything you just guess and check that's how you try and make the inexplicit stuff explicit yeah I um I used to think that uh that all inexplicit stuff should be made explicit because then you can criticize it and then then you can you know make progress and so on and I've come to think that, so first of all, I think that's impossible. Uh, like that, that, like there is always going to be so much more inexplicit knowledge than, than the surface level explicit thing. And so the thing is, when, when do you make it explicit? And then I would say something like, when, <laughs> when you encounter a problem, like when you get stuck on something and, and also, um, there are ways of addressing the inexplicit ideas without necessarily making them explicit. Like there are a, a bunch of different techniques in, in psychology and personal development and, and therapy and so on that, that can allow you to um, update the inexplicit ideas even without necessarily having them go through the, the, the wordy thing. So uh, uh, Eugene Jenlin's focusing is, is I think, the, the best example of this. Can we delve into that a bit? Because I know you're also into personal psychology and uh, Alexander technique and other mindfulness areas. So w earlier, I kind of came from that side where I was into first dual mindfulness and then non-dual mindfulness, kind of the Sam Harris thing. And it was very tough for me to be really connecting these two ideas of critical rationalism and mindfulness because they just couldn't seem to tie well with each other so but you've talked a lot about mindfulness and uh, other techniques of mindfulness so i just love to hear maybe you talk about those things in terms of critical rationalist terms yeah i'm by the way i'm just very curious like so so you you discovered um all of this like mindfulness stuff and then you also discovered critical rationalism and you just and so is it like you just don't see the connection or not really. So in the non-dual mindfulness thing that Sam Harris talks about, it's like there, you know, he talks about there is no self and he talks about free will and all that, which we could delve into. But uh, I sort of take the stance that free will is, again, an emergent phenomenon, yeah. which is different yeah. from kind of what, the, what Sam Harris is talking about. And he's, he talks about, you know, seeing your experiences and, um really observing your experiences and then you're like the authority and then you understand the world right. and nature and, and stuff very, and very very not critical rationalist exactly yeah. <laughs> so uh yeah. but still i kind of you know at first at least i couldn't really make sense of both of those things together but yeah. now i kind of just tend more towards critical rationalism than uh, meditation so it's just kind of their meditation yeah. right now I think, yeah, oh, so much to say. So on, on like the Sam Harris stuff, I think um, at least a lot of what he's saying 
sort of makes sense in itself, but is then translated quite poorly into critical rationalist terms. So like if you hear him use these terms, you're going to think that he's saying something that is like very, very, you know, empiricist and um, and and you know against free will and and sort of like how do we even make sense of creativity and and all of that in in his framework, um, and and then there's the sort of what is meditation and non non dual practices and everything getting at. Um, so I haven't done a lot of meditation mostly because I kept hearing these stories of people who say, yeah, I've been doing 30 minutes a day for like the past five months and I, you know, I'm not really getting anything from it. I'm like, why would you spend so much time doing that if you're not getting anything from it? Um, so I kind of thought like, meh, meditation, mm -hmm. meh. Um, and then I, I discovered, uh, as you say, Alexander technique and, and specifically the uh, Peter Nobes, Michael Ashcroft style, which is, I think, quite unique, even in the Alexander Technique world, which also, as far as I can tell, is very close to non-dual awareness meditation, it turns out. Um, there are lots of unexpected connections in the world. Um, but okay, so how does it connect to critical rationalism? I said earlier that my main thing is non-coercion, non-authoritarian, like like epistemological non-authoritarianism. Right. Um, how do I describe this? Uh, I think a lot of what uh, meditation is getting at is how to reduce the non-productive meta discussion that is going on in your mind so in other words you've got this voice that's going that's that's constantly saying things in your mind and uh comment uh, commentating on on everything that you're doing and criticizing you and um and making you, you self-conscious and wondering like oh how is this gonna go and and fretting about like uh how well did that situation go and all this sort of thing and all of this meta discussion is first of all it's a distraction from the actual content of whatever you're thinking about so you know you want to work on this physics problem uh and then you have all of these thoughts about yourself about like oh i'm i'm not good enough to do this or you know my my friend jeff has already like solved three problems this week or you know whatever i'm, I'm making this up but um so so that's kind of one aspect of it and then and then there are particular, very common ways that uh, this meta discussion manifests. So there's the inner critic, uh, which a lot, you know, psychology therapy talks about. There's this thing where we are, uh, we are kind of planning for the future, or thinking ahead to the future, or thinking like, ah, I want to do this project because it'd be so cool if I have had done that. Like it would be so cool if that was a thing that that I did. But instead of I'm enjoying it now as I'm going along. So it's mm. like, ah, I, I, I want to have this amazing website. And, um, and, and then there's the work of actually like creating the website. And if you're thinking like, ah, oh, I just, I just want this website already, then each bit of work on the website will be soul destroying because it's actually not what you're like thinking about right. because you're thinking about thinking ahead. And, and likewise, if you're, um, having all of these regrets about the past and you keep thinking about, oh, I said this thing and that was so embarrassing and so on. Neither the future nor the past is something that you have any control over. Like you can only affect what you are doing right now. 
And so all of these thoughts are um, ridiculous. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how else to put it. It's sort of like, it does not make sense to have those thoughts because you exist now. You can affect what you do now. That's great. And also, you know, you can think of these big picture things like uh, having a website in, in the course of doing all of these things now. Um, but if you're kind of constantly thinking into the future, then you're missing out on all of this life in the meantime well just something over there um a lot of people have this idea that humans are rational because they can think of the future and uh because we can you know um really think of the future and not care about whatever impulse that we have in the moment that's what makes uh that's what makes humans uh rational creatures and separates us from the animals so uh yeah how, how does that fit into this frame yeah i think it's partly it's that uh we can make abstractions and so we can think about sort of general situations like what is a general principle by which i would want to live my life like if i made something a principle um and then i followed it and then 90 percent of the time it gave me better results than if i didn't have that principle then you might want to follow it even in the 10% of the time when it doesn't give a good result. So like laws are a good example of this. Like, yeah, like it's it's not always necessary to wear a seatbelt, but if you have that as a principle, then on average, then you're going to, you know, survive more car accidents. Right. Um, and then and then there's a the thing of something like that if you're thinking of the future as being part of the present, I don't know if this makes sense. Um, but it's something like uh, you're not only thinking about the future and you're not only thinking about the present, you're thinking about them all sort of as one thing. And then that's where the cool stuff happens, because then you can be like, ah, I think it'd be really cool to have this 10 year long project where I start this company and we gradually build and everything. And then each each moment of um, like, ah, OK, I have to find investors. I have to uh, um, fill out these forms. Each each of those moments in the context of the bigger 10 year goal uh, becomes enjoyable. But then there's the state of like only doing it because you want the end result. And then that's the, the non enjoyable thing. Right. Sorry, we sidetracked a bit yeah. going back <laughs> to. Um, yeah, connecting mindfulness and critical rationalism. Yeah, so I think it's something like um, partly it is noticing where we get stuck in our thinking, like what actually causes us to not be these geniuses who are extremely productive and, and so on. And I would say that that's, um, you could think of it like hangups, you can think of it like these, uh, these, this type of thinking that does not work, which is this meta discussion thing, at least meta discussion in, in the way that it doesn't work, which is this particular. So like when meta discussion is tearing down your ability to trust yourself, like to trust your own thinking, mm -hmm. uh, then, then you get stuck because then you can't like trust any of the thoughts that you have. Um, or when meta discussion is constantly pulling you away from the thing you're trying to think about, uh, then again, like that, that's not, that doesn't work. Um, there, I think there are types of meta discussion that can be helpful. Like if you, if you're stuck on something and then you pop out a layer, 
and you, you can use meta to be like, oh, huh, I was stuck on that thing. And that that is mm. a meta statement, but it, it can still allow you to get back on a, a on a better path. So and, and sometimes even recognizing meta can get us out of that state. Yes, uh, like, I think. Yeah, I guess like not me particularly, but maybe uh, we can have someone who, you know, recognizes that they're going meta and they go even more meta because they're now worried that they're in meta and, you know, that, that just keeps happening. But uh, yeah, is there a better way to perhaps get out of meta or do something? Yeah. Um, so apart from just noticing it, uh, redirect focus to the thing that you're interested in. It, it's sort of like, like subjectively, it feels like there's something that is slightly distracting and kind of pulling you away. And then you can just be like, oh, no, like that's that's not the thing. And then you can sort of redirect focus. Uh, Alexander Technique has a very specific technique for doing this, um, which it uh, misleadingly calls inhibition. Um, but that's maybe a can of worms. But there, there are there are specific techniques for doing this if if it seems uh, difficult. I think you recently discovered something very exciting on Twitter. Uh, I forget exactly what it is, but it was something about Buddhism. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you want to describe that? Yeah, uh, uh, it, this was like last week and, and it blew my mind. Uh, so I'd always heard that Buddhism says that the root of all suffering is desire. And so in order to not suffer, you get rid of desires. And I thought, that sounds terrible. That sounds the opposite of everything that I want in my life. Like, desire is fun. Like, like how, how do you, like, why, why, why are we anti-pleasure all of a sudden? Like, what's going on here? And, and then it turned out that the, the word that sometimes gets translated as desire uh, is basically mistranslated as that. Like, a closer translation would be something like fixated. Like you are fixated on something. So there's something that I want and I, I really want that. And I and I can't kind of like want other things or if I get other things, then I'll be sad and I have to have this thing. Um, uh, which is also uh, has a direct parallel in Alexander Technique, like in Alexander Technique, that that kind of mode is called doing. Um, uh, and, and, and so I realized that that the whole the, the core concept of Buddhism, which is oh that you should you should drop this this thing, uh, I had completely misunderstood. Like it is much closer to being able to um, think any thought, like as in have any want. Like it's sort of like something can come up and and you can like it and 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 desire it and that's cool. And then if you don't get that, then instead of being like, oh no, like I don't have that thing I want, I feel so bad and everything, you can be like, oh okay, I di I didn't get that thing and now now this thing is here. And then you can you can really acknowledge that this thing is here even even in the situations where it's a sort of a like a quote negative emotion. So like you might be uh sad about something, but if you're not um, if you don't have this sort of fixated quality around the sadness, like like that you're trying to push it away or or something, 
then then you can just like feel sad and actually you don't suffer like it's just like a another one of these emotions and it can be quite sweet like there, there can be a sweet kind of sadness or or anger like a lot of people think like oh anger is bad because it's this very like uh, uh blind rage and that sort of thing but actually if you don't have the blind part of the rage then it's actually just really fun it's it's like ah yes i can see things clearly and this boundary should be drawn and and that sort of stuff and so you are not blocking out the rest of the world when you're inhabiting whatever the emotion is and so this is the same as the the thing in meditation of of equanimity so it's that you are treating all of these different emotions or situations as like equally something that you can feel and think into which again ties right back down to the the non-coercive non-authoritarian thing yeah um yeah that's interesting uh, because i always again thought of like this main principle of buddhism being desire is the root of all suffering and that just you should switch off this thing called desire but yeah that's pretty interesting how you discovered that it actually means something different translated into I, i've heard i should say that um that apparently depends on which version of buddhism and there are some that you know basically take that different translation because i think the original word means something like thirst or craving or, or something like that and so there have been lots of different types of buddhisms mm -hmm. uh, but the one that's popular on twitter <laughs> is this this one that's more about fixation cool um and so again switching gears a bit i you you have this YouTube video, you're wearing the color purple now. And in that video, you explain why purple is your favorite color. And you talk about why constraints help creativity. So usually we relate the word creative to, you know, this unboundedness, no limitations, absolutely free, but constraints like the rules of chess, for example, allow a person to have fun and without the force of gravity would be pretty hard to play a game of basketball. So there's plenty of examples that support this idea that constraints are actually good for you, except for the kind that um, are coercive or um, they suppress criticism. So like dogmas or taboos, these kinds of constraints have an unproductive effect. So yeah, I just like to hear your thoughts on constraints being helpful and how they fit into this framework of freedom that I think you and I both deeply care about. Yeah. My my favorite example is that the um constraints in poetry, uh like if, mm -hmm. if you if you think about classical poetry where it has rhyme and meter, um, I generally I mean it you know it depends on the on the poems, like different poems can be good in different ways, but I generally find poems that have structure and yet somehow fit the words in exactly right and somehow it, it feels and, and whatever I find those a lot more uh, engaging and so it, it, it's something like to do any kind of thinking you need to have criteria for the thoughts like what what counts as a, a thought that meets your problem or what is interesting um and then, and then you were asking about the uh, the the constraints. So yeah. So what 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 is the thing that happens when when uh, it's coercively constraining? I think, I think I would say it is when when there is a um, a force that is preventing you from 
using creativity like like maybe maybe it's even something like when creativity is being used to thwart your creativity so instead of it is a static problem and once i've solved it it's gone and then i can work on the next problem it's a problem that sort of adapts to uh to meet like whatever you're trying to do and so no matter what you do you keep running into a a, a wall um i i wrote this uh this less wrong post um about um beware uh something like coping strategies or something and i gave this example of um if there's a rock in your path and you trip over a rock then that's that's one thing that's sort of that's that's nature you don't necessarily feel sort of aggrieved by the rock but if you're walking along and then the rocks like jump in in front of your feet like just as you're about to take a step then that's annoying because now you are working against this this creative force of these magic rocks um uh, in order to, to to like do anything and so maybe that's where the the bad type of of coercion comes into it right and so the rules of chess being a example of a productive constraint the rules of chess are one thing but if someone forces me to play chess uh so the rules are there but and i have fun playing the game but if someone forces me against my will to play chess then that's again a constraint that's that's yeah. not really good uh, yeah uh, that's so yeah and then there i would say that it's the it's the person who's forcing you to play chess and then all of the like i don't know how they're forcing you whether they have a, a gun or whether they're your parent or like whether you know it's a school situation but whatever that structure is is the coercive unpleasant thing and then the chess is sort of like somewhat arbitrary arbitrary uh, so um do you not think that the rules of chess or like some rules really have to be kind of fine-tuned and to be a particular way in order for them to be fun or uh, engaging i think i think it maybe it depends like it like i can imagine a group of friends who are like let's let's invent a new board game mm -hmm. and then they come up with rules and then and like it's it's fun to play with these crap rules <laughs> for a while um, and then I can imagine, uh, you know, that that uh, thing that they came up with in, in 30 minutes being made a mandatory part of the school curriculum. And then suddenly it's because because then you're you're learning less from it. And then so maybe there's less interesting thing and maybe it's more busy work. On the other hand, if it's sort of sufficiently simple, then maybe it's better because then you can be thinking about other things while you're doing it. So. Um, I, I would separate out the coercive element from the uh, what makes something interesting and good element. Do you so? Do you have like um, any idea of how schools could, or just this whole education thing, could start being more liberal or more voluntary, and how they could just uh, go into this direction of um, non-coercion? Yeah, there there are already uh, so-called free schools, which are basically like school buildings where you can go and they have sort of varying degrees of rules, but but much more freedom than than regular schools. Um, 
So there's, there's, I mean, so if you've got like home education on one side and, and school on the other, there's things like Montessori, which is like kind of a school. It's like more on the school end than the home education end, but it's sort of better than like school school. Um, and then there's things like Summerhill and Sudbury Valley, which are more kind of free schools and they're sort of like in the middle. And then there's the sort of home education. And um, I mean, given that we have the internet, like I've been, I've been saying this since I was a kid, which was like the '90s. Like we, we've, we've had good enough internet to uh, educate people um, for a while, uh, and so I think the problem, like, there are lots of practical problems. There's like uh, parents uh, working and and having time to be around and and child sitting. There's there's things like um, uh, meeting people and socializing. Um, but in terms of the actual education part, uh, I, I don't think we need a, a school system. I don't think we need to design anything. I think people following their own interests and uh, picking up from the culture uh, effective ways of, of pursuing those, like, oh, you can find uh, message boards, you can find a community of practice, you can find people who are, who are trying things out, you can find um, experiments you can do, you can write about it, you can do all of these different things. I think like so long as you have access to culture, um, which everyone does because everyone is on the internet, uh, then like the education part, I think is mostly like good. Like we, we've mostly got that done. <laughs> okay. Um, and now with AI and ChatGPT, I, I think that's just getting even better than yeah, exactly. perhaps the nineties or yeah. yeah. Um, lastly, I just want to hear your thoughts on the whole community that's forming around critical rationalism. Uh, I really like it, but obviously uh, I do think like there's some tendency whenever something like kind of becomes a community or a group. Um, and again, the critical rationalism is just so against, you know, uh, calling it Popperian or Deutschian or uh, again, critical rationalism again. So the ism, but just, what do you think about the ideas? The ideas are spreading, and uh, a few, like a lot of people, are getting into it. But obviously, not as much as uh, I think we'd want. Uh, I definitely want more people to become aware of these ideas. But uh, yeah, how do you think about the community that's forming around critical rationalism? Yeah, I mean, I think the what you call it um, debate is a kind of a red herring. Uh, I think I think it's I think it's a, a, a hullabaloo about nothing basically, um, and the actual thing is that um, there, there's currently no centralized hub for critical rationalism. Like there are like a, a ton of like sort of tiny groups. Like Less Wrong became a very popular community and had a lot of things coming out of it and and did a lot of good stuff because it had a website that was the community website that if you wanted to be in the community you would go to that website there would be a sequence of posts that you would read so that you would understand basically what other people are talking about uh, and and it worked really well really well and um and i think there have been a lot of people sort of like trying to create a more centralized community for critical rationalists uh my, my personal favorite is the the invariance uh that they have a podcast and they also have a discord and i, I just love their community okay um but but there hasn't been kind of like one place like basically it's twitter which is a bit of a wild west anyway 
and uh so i think this is more about just like community organizing like the the types of people who get attracted to critical rationalism mostly happen to not be community organizer type people and and so we're only recently seeing that um pop up uh so uh logan chipkin is having a, a meetup yeah. in june um so anyone listening to this you should you should definitely come to that i'll be there so <laughs> um yeah so i i think i think it's i think it's more a kind of accident of how communities have have evolved out of the thing well, we thank you so much for your time before i let you go what are some books slash resources you might suggest for people who are inspired by this conversation and perhaps want to delve firstly deeper into epistemology and then resources for uh the kind of stuff we talked about with mindfulness and alexander technique yeah i'm i'm instead of recommending books i'm going to recommend uh first of all a podcast which is the invariance podcast i think if you're if you're coming to critical rationalism um especially from uh like either the bayesian or effective altruist um direction then then i don't i don't think that podcast can be beat um it's the first time of... I'm actually hearing about it. Uh, oh, really? I've heard of, yeah, I've heard of I Increments, which is pretty nice. I think you've been on there as yeah. well. But Invariance, that's the first oh, time. Oh, sorry, I'm not on. Invariance, uh, Increments. Uh, in <laughs> yeah, sorry, okay. that, that was, that was uh, my, my brain just did a, a math anyway. Uh, All right. Yeah, so no, it's the yes. Increments podcast, okay. Yes, yes, yes. No, Invariance is, a, is, is the math society in Oxford University. That's why I got confused ah. there. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, apologies for that. Um, but yeah, so so that one on um, on the epistemology stuff, and then for the mindfulness stuff, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I would say um, the Alexander Technique post on my blog on luli.co.uk uh, would be down. yeah. That's the kind of the closest thing that I can think of that is a an epistemology first look into what is this Alexander Technique thing. Um, I'm intending to write more posts about connecting critical rationalism to the mindfulness stuff, but they're, they're not up yet. But I will I will pin them to my to my pinned tweets uh, when, when I do write them. Cool. Amazing. Um, thanks again, Lily. This was a lot of fun. We should do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you.